Well, hey, everybody, I want to welcome you to another episode of the Performance Enhanced Benefits Podcast. I'm Steven Snyder, your host. You know, our goal and mission of this podcast is to bring subject matter experts on here to interview them and ask them things about business owners and uh, things that businesses might be going through that they may have never thought about before and help bring value to their business. Uh, today, I'm joined by Mario Lamar. Uh, Mario is an attorney at the Allen Bryson Law Firm here in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Hey, Mario, how are you doing today? Hey, Stephen, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. How are All you right. doing? I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. Obviously, you and I were chatting uh, chatting earlier, talking about a little bit of similar backgrounds that the two of us have. Uh, both found out recently that both of our dads are West Point grads, and we spent traveling the world uh, <laughs> growing up together. We're not necessarily together, but you know, with, within our families. So how many states did you say that you grew up in? I think it was somewhere around nine. Yeah, I, th I think I determined that as well. It was uh, that I lived in nine different states and two countries, counting counting the U.S. Of course, I always like to trick people a little bit when I say that I lived in two different countries because people are like, "Well, what other one?" Was when I say Germany, and they're like, "What or what other one?" Well, the U.S. Obviously, but uh, uh, so it's like I throw a trick question in there. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, that counts, and I I know that. Uh... So, you know, some some states that you have to you, you get the honor of living in uh, moving with the army. It can feel like a different country, too. So, you know, you, you could throw another trick question in there next time. Yeah, I, I think that's true as well. And I think Texas is probably one of those states, right? <laughs> uh, just because it, you know, obviously the whole once we moved here two years ago, the whole saying of everything's bigger in Texas and the people in Texas just have a whole different feel and uh, attitude about it uh, than, than basically anywhere you'd ever lived. And so far. I would agree with that. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. But we'll, we'll go ahead and kind of get started here with everything. So, uh, Mario, just tell us, you know, obviously you are an attorney, but you mostly focus on business attorney. So what's really the difference? You know, for those that may think, you know, well, an attorney is an attorney is an attorney. Well, there's got to be some differences, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, attorneys are like a lot of professions, probably the one of the more comparable <laughs> professions would be a doctor you know you, okay. you don't want uh, a cardiologist um, you know handling your brain surgery or something along those lines and it, it's the same with lawyers um, so business lawyers you know I focus on issues that impact you know businesses we do business litigation and business transactional but within uh, within the sphere of business lawyers you'll have some business lawyers who only do transactional um, which just means they are contract drafters and deal makers, and, and they don't really touch litigation or, uh, or lawsuits. Um, and so from business lawyers, there's obviously an array of other kinds of lawyers that you might need uh, at some point in your life. Obviously, there's criminal lawyers. Um, you don't want a criminal lawyer handling your <laughs> you know, business contract. And, uh, and then there's, of course, estate and probate lawyers and um, intellectual property lawyers. So there's all kinds of different different specialties uh, when it comes to lawyers, and and uh, I've chosen to focus my practice uh, around business. And my firm also has a uh, has a pretty busy construction law practice as well. And then we do commercial collections, um, which is you know collections, uh, debt collections between businesses. So okay. we don't go after, you know, consumer debt, but we go after business debt. So business is owed a bunch of money. Um, we're the ones you call. Um, but those are, you know, kind of the three 
practice areas we focus in on. Um, and uh, we have offices in, in DFW, like you said, and then we have an office in East Texas as well. Okay. Yeah, that's a great analogy that you put there, you know, being like doctors uh, that, you know, you don't want your optometrist or anybody to do your heart surgery or vice versa. You know, you, you may all have the same degree, but you also have different areas of focus and you want to let people kind of stay in their lane and, you know, work with those that, uh, that, that are handling that stuff on a kind of day-to-day basis. Exactly. Um, obviously, you know, every business is thinking about different legal options and things like that, whether it be from structures to everyday things, you know, but how do businesses find legal options that work for them without really breaking the bank? Because obviously finances is always going to be a big concern. Right, right. Well, that's, you know, that's super important when you're looking for a lawyer. I mean, the, the first place you want to start when you're trying to find legal representation is, is what we spoke about just a moment ago. You want to find someone who practices in the area of your need. So um, finding, you know, if you're, if you're looking for uh, someone to help you with your contract, finding a business lawyer who does transactional stuff. Um, and uh, the second place though, of course, is, you know, finding a lawyer who's going to be within your budget because not every lawyer costs the same. And um, there are a lot of different ways you can, you know, you can, uh, bill or you can charge for legal services. And it's it's kind of one of those issues where we're evolving a lot in the legal industry. Um, so I, I like to tell clients, you know, before you hire someone, you should talk to several lawyers and, you know, with that specialty and see what is going to be, who can meet your, your budget, who can meet your goals as far as what you want to spend on a lawyer. Um, because lawyers, like you said, they get expensive. And one of the interesting things about the legal world these days is uh, lawyers have kind of learned that, you know, we have to be more flexible with the way we bill or charge our clients. And so back in the, you know, back in the day, it was you hire a lawyer, you're going to pay their hourly rate and, and that's it. And they'll invoice you or they'll get a retainer. And, and you know, that's kind of how it it's handled. But nowadays you can hire a lawyer um, on a flat rate basis, meaning, you know, for a project, they, the lawyer tells you like for this contract, I'm going to charge you 800 bucks um, or something along those lines. And then you can also hire a lawyer who will handle the case on contingency. You see that a lot in personal injury cases, but you also see it in uh, collection cases as well, where the lawyer gets a percentage of whatever they collect or whatever they can bring in. Okay. Um, and, and so that a lot of times, if you're, if you have a, if you're a plaintiff on a case where you're the one who stands to, you know, obtain some money from the lawsuit, then, a, you know, a lot of times a lawyer might take that case on contingency if you have a pretty decent case. And so you're not having to pay out of pocket. Instead, you're just having to pay the lawyer, you know, their percentage. Um, and, uh, you know, the lawyer might have you pay hard costs, like filing fees out of pocket or something along those lines. But the vast majority of your expenses in any kind of litigation is going to be the lawyer fees. And so contingency helps you avoid that. Um, so, yeah. And then, and then there's also the option of doing something hybrid where the lawyer would say, OK, I'm going to, you know, I get a percentage of the recovery, but it's going to be less than the typical contingency percentage. And you do pay me hourly, but I'm going to cut my hourly rate in half. So that's, you know, the reason we call it a hybrid is it's kind of a mix between the two common models of contingency and hourly. Um, and so, you know, those are 
some of the different ways that lawyers are are billing these days. And if you talk to several lawyers, you can probably find someone who might, you know, fit the billing structure that makes the most sense for your business, um, depending on, you know, what your issue is. But especially on transactional stuff, uh, I would suggest business owners go out and try to find someone who will do it for a flat rate. Because unlike litigation, contracts are a little more predictable, especially after you, ha- you, you do initial consultation and figure out what the client wants. I, I can you know, say I, I usually know what I would bill a client for a contract after that consultation, so I can do it on a flat rate. And I know there are a lot of lawyers out there who will do that as well. Now, that makes sense the, uh, you know, to interview different attorneys, but also to understand how they bill as well. Because like I said, I mean, I was only familiar with a few things. Most people, I think, are familiar with uh, the contingency aspect that you see with personal injury attorneys, uh, but also hourly or transactional, different ways of being able to do it short-term, long-term, but also retainer as well, just different things to kind of take into mind. Uh, you know, obviously another question that comes up with a lot of businesses, you know, that they are, they're growing. They've got some extra cash and they, and they want to buy another company. You know, if you're growing another company or excuse me, not just growing another company, but purchasing another company, what are some things that you need to consider? Yeah, and that, that's a, that's a big one. It seems like small businesses and, and obviously large businesses are merger, merging and acquiring other businesses these days at, at just a rapid rate. And we think of, you know, the big mergers you see on TV and in the news, but uh, it's happening every day with small companies as well. Um, and it's a great way to grow your business, especially if you find a good target. Um, so the, the two most kind of common ways of structuring your acquisition, it's going to either be an asset sale or a stock sale. And an asset sale is where you're, you're just buying that business's assets. Um, A stock sale would be you're buying the business as a whole. You're buying their stock, uh, essentially, you know, a hundred percent of their stock or whatever. And you're in that process, you're essentially buying, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You're buying, you know, their uh, assets, but you're also purchasing the liabilities as well. So, for companies looking to grow by acquisition, I generally would recommend, you know, doing an asset sale. Um, this is probably the part of the the part of our talk where I need to, you know, give the legal disclaimer. Like anything I'm saying today is not legal <laughs> advice, and I'm I'm talking in general generalities. But um, but yeah, with with uh, with being on the buyer side, an asset sale usually makes the most sense because you're you know what you're getting. Whereas with stock sales, you could be uh, getting a bunch of liabilities. Usually, those are disclosed, but um, you know that adds another layer to it as well. Where the due diligence period in a stock sale can be long and very expensive because you know you're not just looking at the the main assets the company has; you're looking at all of their liabilities and all the risk and all of the issues that come with that. And so you're having to really dive in uh, to the business on a level you, you don't quite need to with an asset sale. So, um, you know, kind of the short answer is asset sales are usually going to be better for buyers. So that's a good place to start. Um, and then the other couple good tidbits for uh, growing by acquisition, you know, it's a good idea to get a good business broker. Um, these are folks who 
specialize in this area. They, they buy and sell businesses for, for people and they're going to have the knowledge that you need to negotiate a good deal. Um, and there's also a lot of business brokers who will work on contingency as well or, or work okay. off a percentage, yeah, percentage of the deal. So they, they can help you along the way. And there may be a way to get someone who will do it without you having to pay a bunch out of pocket. Um, so at least up front. So that, that's always good. It's always good to have a good business broker, whether they are on contingency or otherwise, because they're going to help shepherd you through the process. Um, finding a good lender is important. Obviously, if, you, if you're not going to self-finance the deal, you're going to need a good banker to help you through that process. And, uh, and then finding a good lawyer to help paper it up uh, is always important as well. Yeah, so it sounds like then that uh, when you're going through any kind of uh, buying or selling of a company, it makes sense to have, you got to have good contracts, right? So, so they ought to be focusing on all the contracts that are being uh, generated and, and signed, of course, too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a huge part of being a business owner just in general, especially small or medium-sized business where, you know, there may not be, if you're, if you're not uh, – a franchisee, you're having to do your own contracts and um, it, it becomes very vital that you're using good contracts that make sense for your business. Um, you know, the, the folks will ask me like, why, why should I spend all this money on, on getting a new contract or drafting a contract? And, you know, the simple answer is lawsuits or going to arbitration uh, it's going to be very, very expensive. The results are often unknown and your contract can cut out a lot of that, uh, a, a lot of the unknowns. So, um, you know, that's one of the reasons contracts are so important for business owners is because they can help you kind of navigate or they can help deal with issues that are common to your industry, stuff that comes up a lot. Um, you know, a lot of my clients, they've if they have problems getting vendors to pay, well, you know, that's an area we can really focus in on with their contract. Um, but if a business is bringing in investors, obviously you want your contract to protect the business if things go sideways. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the contract just becomes as important to risk mitigation as your, you know, as your insurance policy. So, uh, it can, it can, um, kind of foreshadow and help you deal with future potential issues and potential litigation. So it's, uh, it saves a lot of money, frankly, um, when it comes down to what you might have to spend to enforce your rights as a small business. Um, and so that's, you know, that's why I tell clients like you really do need to spend money and time on your contracts because it's going to save you a lot of time, headaches and legal fees down the road. Yeah, it almost sounds like it's like the old construction saying of uh, measure twice and cut once, you know, because if you measure it twice and, and you know, dot all your I's and cross all your T's, you'll be in a better shape now than if you were just to say, ah, that looks good. I'll go ahead and cut it. And then you may end up costing yourself more money down the road. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> right. Um, you know, the uh, back to acquisitions, I, I've, I've had to help clients who came to me after the acquisition, after they signed the purchase and sale agreement or, or whatever document um, might be papering up the acquisition. And there's all kinds of issues with it. Either they got it, you know, from, uh, 
from an online just kind of form uh, website or they uh, drafted it themselves, which I don't advise. But in, in both of those situations, I mean, I've had clients come to me where the, you know, an example is the a client who purchases online business. It was an asset sale, but it wasn't structured with a clear timeline of when the assets would get transferred to the buyer. And it was a payment over time. You know, they were they were making monthly payments for the for the purchase of the business. So it kind of what happened was the seller didn't transfer over the assets right away. And the buyer decided, well, I don't have the assets, so I'm going to stop paying. And it becomes this question of, well, who's breached the contract first? Was it the seller by not turning over the assets right away? Or was it the buyer when they stopped paying their monthly payments? And, uh, and so that's an example of how situations can, you know, with a decently drafted contract, they would have avoided both those issues and uh, gotten ahead of it all by having a, a you know, more uh, concrete contract that's not ambiguous. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, that's, you know, just one example of, of many where client comes to me and now they're either in litigation or they're going to need to litigate in order to protect their interests. And, uh, and the contract is a big part of the reason that they're having to litigate the issue. Yeah. And, and making things much more specific is allows for, I'm guessing if you're getting in front of a judge, that's what they're going to be looking at is uh, the specifics of everything and make and, and determining how they can rule. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, Texas and, and I think probably a lot of states will follow the four corners doctrine. But the idea is a judge on a contract you know, question or a breach of contract case, they're just going to look at the language in the contract. And if the contract is specific, then that's all they're going to look at. But if the contract is ambiguous, or the specific issue uh, is not you know, provided for in the contract, now the judge can look outside of the four corners of the contract at what's called parole evidence. And, uh, and now your conversations or your emails, that stuff can come into evidence and, and it makes uh, predictability, you know, very difficult. So having your contract, uh, like you said, Stephen, be specific is, is important. Um, and having it well drafted just in general is even more important. So, um, but those are, yeah, I mean, those are just some of the issues that come up with, with bad contracts. Yeah, is that probably why you may see some contracts out there that are, you know, 20, 30 pages long when they really could have been four? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's <laughs> Lawyers are, are uh, like a lot of industries, like insurance, we, we're always looking at how we can mitigate risk. And unfortunately, sometimes that means you got to have a 30-page contract when at the end of the day, maybe four pages would we'll get the deal done. Um, but it's looking to the eventualities of a deal and trying to provide for them in writing. So, uh, so that at the end of the day, we're not having to figure this out outside of the contract and putting yeah. it all in. Cause ultimately uh, you're trying to use the contract to avoid litigation in the future. Cause I'm sure litigation is probably a pain in the ass, isn't it? That, that's exactly right. Your, your contract, and if it doesn't help you avoid litigation, it's at least going to make it easier for you. Um, I think of, you know, an example there is with my clients who are 
you know, who come to me for commercial collections, having contract language that might say, for example, uh, you know, a, the vendor or whoever the, the, the party on the other side, right? If they have a dispute with my client's invoice, they have to put that dispute in writing within 15 days of receipt of invoice. Um, that's just an example, but the idea is now when a, you know, when the party on the other side comes to you six months later saying they're not going to pay your invoice because they got all these disputes, they haven't raised those disputes before. And, uh, and you can go back to the contract and say, well, look, this, this language said you needed to bring these disputes in writing way back when, you know, within 15 days of getting our invoice. So that doesn't mean you, you won't ultimately end up in a lawsuit, but it just means that you're going to have a pretty good argument for, uh, for being able to shut that the other side down. And, um, and ultimately, even if you can't prevent litigation with your contract, a lot of times what you're trying to do is just shorten or make litigation simpler for your side. Um, so if you do get, if you do have to go to court, you have a pretty clear path of winning. Yeah. Makes sense. You know, you talked about, you know, the companies and getting invoices and things like that. Do you work with a lot of companies that are, I guess, working off of working off of credit? Oh yeah. Yeah. I would say most of, you know, most of our, uh, non-payment commercial collection clients, they're in credit-based industries, um, which just means those companies are, you know, they're doing work for other, for their clients on a credit basis. They're providing the work and then, you know, the work materials or labor, and then they're invoicing and they're getting paid um, based on those, you know, that invoice and, and the work they provided. Um, and so that's, it's uh, kind of a, for lawyers, it's kind of a specialized area. If you're in the creditor's rights uh, arena, um, most of your clients are going to be credit-based because they're a lot of times extending a lot of credit. You know, some of my clients in the oil and gas or construction industries, they might do, you know, a few million dollars of work in a single day, especially in oil and gas. And, uh, and then if, if, you know, the company on the other side doesn't, pay that invoice well now you got to get a lawyer involved and go try to collect those funds yeah so it'd be, be a lot of money for a company just to uh, essentially to shell out for for free as they're trying to you know do the labor the cost uh, what, whatever so how are companies able to avoid uncollectible situations if, if i'm even asking that correctly uh you know where they're going out and you know providing a million dollars worth of work and making sure that they're still getting paid on it that, that's right. And so the, you know, for those companies in those industries, you know, example is we do a lot of work for oil and gas subcontractors, construction subcontractors are, are another example. Um, but, you know, there's a whole uh, number of industries that just work off credit and, um, you know, providing your labor and services on credit in those industries uh, is essentially a must you have to do it so how do you avoid the risk of uncollectible debt and the probably the most important thing outside of you know having a good contract is important because you know it can help you go collect it but um but at the end of the day if you have someone on the other side who's insolvent that's not going to do you a whole lot of good so i tell clients you really need to have a good credit investigation uh 
either department or if you know if you're a smaller business uh, have really good policies and procedures in place for when you're extending credit to your customers so um, a lot of my clients will use credit applications and i think that's sure. a really good um, way to protect yourself if you're in a credit-based industry because the credit application requires references um, it requires you know tax information it'll it'll also uh, have terms and conditions on it usually and so that's good because now you're getting terms and conditions favorable for your business signed up front before you extend the credit and it's a good opportunity to uh, if you're extending a lot of credit and and the other side's willing to do it you can get an individual guarantee and add that to your credit application as well um, and it'll just give you more leverage if at the end of the day, the debt ends up being uncollectible. But those credit investigations are super important so that you're not extending credit to companies who are, you know, who are close to insolvency or have issues paying their, you know, paying uh, for, for work that's done. So that's, you know, that can head off a lot of issues at the pass if you have a good credit investigation uh, process. So, so it's almost like uh, having, you know, if I'm going out and renting a rent, renting a house or an apartment or something like that, where I'm having to go through these applications to pro, to show proof of income, uh, credit history, references, et cetera. It's almost similar to that then as, as you're kind of, you're kind of not weeding out. That's not sort of the right way of saying that. But uh, as you're getting ready to set up a job with somebody, you're kind of interviewing them to determine whether you would want to, to have them as a client. Exactly. That's exactly right. Right. And you get a lot of, uh, and, and you, you explained the process uh, very correctly. It's, it's similar, very, very much similar to going out and filling out an application for an apartment or something like that for an individual. Um, it's not quite, a lot of times it won't be quite as, as heavy handed where you're, you're finding out, you know, the exact dollar of business that the company's doing every year, but you learn a lot. And, uh, and yeah, through that process, you'll get a good sense of whether, you know, this is someone reliable that you want to do business with or, or not. And there's always an interplay there, as you can imagine, between the sales team who want to get credit for bringing <laughs> oh, in <yeah>. customers <laughs> and uh, in the credit department who's responsible at the end of the day for making sure the customers that do come on board are paying their bills. So it's interesting how, you know, you get into a pretty big litigation over a non-payment uh for a client and you'll see those emails where the the sales side is saying yeah no we need to go forward and the credit side saying wait 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 now we gotta you know we gotta cross our t's and dot our i's first and and so there's that you know there's definitely that interplay but you know if you have good policies and procedures in place you can a lot of times avoid those issues by saying like look they they haven't met the you know this requirement they they don't uh, that they have a bunch of UCC liens or they have a bunch of debt. They have a bunch of deeds of trust on their real property. And um, however you do your investigation, having thresholds where you just say no, if they don't, you know, if the, if, uh, the other side doesn't meet those thresholds, being able to say, look, we're not going to extend credit or, you know, under these circumstances, we're going to require an individual guarantee. And, um, but it's like a lot of things, having those in place before you start is going to help avoid a fight between the credit department and the sales department. Um, so everybody's on the same page. You know, when this happens, we need this and you can uh, you can set up your company for success 
in a credit-based industry by doing that stuff. Um, the other thing I would say too, uh, for kind of credit-based businesses is to join one of the, you know, national organizations or state organizations who focus entirely on credit collection stuff. Um, An example is, uh, the national association of credit management, um, NACM they're, they're a big one. Um, but they give all kinds of tips and uh, resources for companies in these, you know, in credit-based industries. And so you can, you can learn a lot by joining an association like that. No, that's, that's great resource. You know, and as kind of, we're wrapping up here, you know, other pieces of advice, what's, what's one last piece of advice that you'd want to give our listeners? Uh, don't, you know, I would say get a lawyer. Uh, if you're, if you're a small to medium sized business, get a lawyer that you trust and, uh, and don't be afraid to use them when, when you need a contract looked at or when you have a legal question. At the end of the day, these small issues probably aren't going to cost your business a whole lot, but they're going to save you a lot of headache in the end. And um, finding someone you, you trust who can uh, keep within your budget is just it's so important to have that legal resource available to you so that when things do hit the fan, you, you have someone by your side. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as and as we final finalize up everything up here, if someone wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to be able to do so? Uh, they can contact me uh, by email or phone. Um, okay, I'm not sure if you'll, you you provide that in the yeah. We'll in put this the in, the, in the yeah. We'll put this in the show notes here. Okay, great. Yeah, and M. Lamar at Allen Bryson Law Firm, uh, uh, or AllenBrysonLaw.com. Sorry, and uh, and. And also, you're welcome to provide my phone number. I'm I'm happy to talk to potential clients, and um, you know, on on a number of issues. And we don't charge the consultation fee. And uh, I say try to find lawyers who don't do that because they can be a good resource. And and uh, and then you're not having to spend a bunch of money trying to figure out who's the best fit for you. Well, it makes perfect sense, well, Mario. I appreciate you joining us today. Um, and everybody, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Stephen. Happy Thanksgiving. All right, thanks to you as well.